0: Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Haspler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Based on some of the words that we have sung together, I trust that you can understand why it is that worship is a particular kind of warfare as we are proclaiming publicly these truths about the lordship and the reign of our Christ. And because of that, I just would like to continue us in worship by praying before we turn to the word as it's preached. So would you bow with me again? Lord, my request of you this morning as we come to this portion of our worship is that our experience would be like that of those who walked on the road to Emmaus with the Lord Jesus Christ, who opened to them the scriptures, causing their hearts to burn within them as he declared everything that he said about himself. And so by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would help us to listen and to direct the eyes of our faith to your beloved son. We know that your word is living and active. You don't need me to make it alive because it already is but I pray, Lord, that it would make me alive for this task now and that it would make your people alive and even bring to life that which is spiritually dead, opening up eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. So because you love him and because you have given all things into his hands, I pray that you would help us to honor him as we continue to worship, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On February the uh, 7th, 2021, we embarked as a church on a series in the book of Genesis, and this morning that series comes to a close. Over a year and a half ago, I began by quoting these words from the philosopher Plato, He said, the beginning is the biggest part of any work, and therefore it is of supreme importance. Though he did not have Genesis in mind, truer words could not be said about the opening book of the Bible than those. The book of Genesis is about the beginning of the universe. The book of Genesis is about the beginning of the human race created in the image of God. The book of Genesis is about the beginning of human beings in relationship with God himself. The book of Genesis, poetically put, is about the beginning of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into our world and all our woe with loss of Eden. The book of Genesis, then, is also about the beginning of God's unfolding plan of salvation, of His desire and design to bless all the nations through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fundamental worldview questions that we all seek answers to are found in the book of Genesis. We are told where we come from. We're told who we are. We're told why we're here. We're told what is wrong with us and what is wrong with our world. Clearly something is. And we are told how God intends to begin fixing us and our world. The beginning Is the biggest part of any work, and therefore it is of supreme importance. To underscore this, I wish to preach one final sermon on the entire book of Genesis a summary, a survey of all that we have seen and heard. We've walked through the book verse by verse. You have heard the entire book read out loud over the last months. It takes three and a half hours to read the book of Genesis out loud, just in case you were wondering. You've heard over 40 hours of preaching on Genesis, over 60 sermons, including this morning, an accidental nice round number. Your pastors have spent between 750 to 800 hours of study and prayer, translating almost the entire book from Hebrew to English, reading thousands of pages of material, all in an effort to prepare sermons that are faithful to the text and applicable to life. And we do this because we believe the Word of God does the work of God by the power of the Spirit of God in the church of God to exalt the Son of God to the glory of God. So to that end, let me give you my distilling of Genesis 1 to 50 after more than a year and a half of my life spent in this book. And this will also serve as our traveling guide for 50 chapters of the Bible in a single sermon. I know you don't think that I can do it, but I, it's possible with God's help. Here's my distilling of Genesis. Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, sovereignly orchestrates the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations. Hopefully that can be put up behind you if it's not, but I will repeat it. From the very beginning, the God of all creation makes arrangements to destroy Satan, sin, and death by entering into an unbreakable agreement with one man for the good of all peoples. Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, sovereignly orchestrates the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations. Now, if that's too much of a mouthful, if you want to distill that even more, I'm going to tweak a borrowed phrase to summarize the Bible's storyline this way. It's very simple. Slay the dragon, save the girl. Slay the dragon, save the girl. The dragon... Is that ancient serpent, Satan, who shows up in God's garden, wreaking havoc. In the aftermath, God promises a serpent crusher, a dragon slayer, who himself, God, and the person of Christ, was slain from before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself, a people the Bible calls his bride. Slay the dragon, save the girl is the story of Scripture. And as Andy Nassali points out in his book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, it is no accident that throughout history people have been captivated by stories of dragon types and dragon slayer types who risk or give their life to save others. He points out several. St. George and the Dragon, Beowulf, The Pilgrim's Progress, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter. Even in the Marvel Universe, so popular today, one gives their life to bring an end to the destructive Thanos, whose name is derived from the Greek word for death. These stories come from us, and they resonate within us because they are echoes of the story of reality, the story of our lives, the true story that all of us are part of. There is a dragon Who lies and steals and kills and destroys, who has the power of death and who has offspring. And we need a dragon slayer to save us from him because we are no match for this foe. Do you feel that? Do you feel that you're no match for the enemy of our souls? Do you feel that you're no match for the indwelling sin that he so easily tempts us to indulge in? Do you feel like that plastic shriveling up in the fire under the heat of his accusations? Do you feel like you're just curled up into a ball right now with your hands over your head and he's kicking you when you're done because that's what he does? Do you find his lies notoriously difficult to spot and root out? Do you feel that you're no match for his offspring in the world system that has been set up in opposition to God? Do you feel that you're no match for evil and for suffering and for death? Then lean in with me one last time to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the introduction to the story of the dragon being slain and the girl being saved. Because there we read of Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, sovereignly orchestrating the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations. And we need to continually hear what this reveals about God and about ourselves. So open with me then to the book of Genesis. 1-1, we'll read the whole book, and then I'm just kidding. (laughs) Open with me to the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis 2-4. And if you don't have a Bible, if you're not a Christian, and you don't know what any of this is about, grab one in front of you. It's super easy to find. It's the first place. It's the first book. Turn to Genesis 2-4 you're going to be turning with me i'll give you time to do it i'll take my cue as the quieting of the pages being turned but we're going to trace out these themes starting with genesis 2:4 why there because it's the first occurrence of a repeated phrase used by the author moses all the way through the book genesis 2:4 we read this phrase these are the generations of there are ten of these phrases in the book of Genesis that give us the structure. And these are what we will follow as we overview the, overview the book. When we look for the structure the Spirit has inspired, we're helped to get at the meaning. Genesis 2.4 is unique of these, uh, the ten, these are the generations of sayings, because it is not followed by a name, as are all the rest. Genesis 2.4 reads, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. This phrase ties together the introductory seven-day creation account of 1-1 to 2-3 with the surround sound 3-D creation account that follows in 2-5 to 25. In this introduction to the introduction, we meet the sovereign God Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth. Ten times a number indicating fullness, God speaks, and the universe springs into being by the power of God's Word, being both formed and filled. And God's summary of His creation, which includes every single one of us as human beings made in His image, His conclusion is that this is very good. Then in chapter 2, we're given a more intimate account of God's creative acts in the beautiful, holy location of Eden. And there, Yahweh forms the first man from the dust and breathes into him the breath of life. And he gives him a holy job as a vice-regent, as a priest in the garden temple. Shortly thereafter, we witness the first marriage as God makes Eve from Adam's side as a helper fit for this regal task of human beings having dominion over all that God has made, the Bible begins with a marriage, and it ends with a marriage. God speaks to the man and woman in creation covenant. We read in Genesis 1:28: God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But before too long, in Genesis 3, the serpent slithers in, running his lip, questioning God's perfect word, deceiving the woman who eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and who gives to her husband who also eats. The consequences are devastating. What enters in is the agony of hiding. Adam and Eve hide from each other. They hide from God. There is shame. There's the agony of blaming. Adam throws God under the bus. Then he throws Eve under the bus. Then Eve throws the serpent under the bus. And we've been doing it ever since. There's the agony of groaning. The woman will groan from childbearing. The couple will groan from relationship woes. The man will groan from working the cursed ground. And everyone will groan from the wages of sin, which is death. But in that very moment, that we already, even to this point, understand God to be sovereign, powerful, uncreated, eternal, and holy, we learn that he is also loving and merciful on the second darkest day in the history of the universe, God utters a whisper about an even darker day to come, which at the same time will also be the brightest of hopes. Look to Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Into the midst of this moment of human's His heel. And from this point forward, through the seed of the woman, Yahweh will sovereignly orchestrate the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations slay the dragon, save the girl. But the conflict will be bloody and violent. Adam and Eve are clothed in animal skin. Before being ejected from Eden, one of the ones that Adam named dies in front of him in his place. The conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is almost immediate. This promise of God is attacked straight away as Cain kills his brother in the first recorded murder. The apostle John writes that Cain was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. There is conflict. Following the death of Abel at the hands of Cain, the writer then of Genesis begins to trace out the godly line of the woman and the ungodly line of the serpent. The war between the two groups of offspring that resulted in the first murder in Genesis 4 now becomes clearer. Lines are drawn. And the offspring of the woman seems to be outmatched by the offspring of the serpent. But another son is born to Adam and Eve, Seth. And so the line continues, which brings us to the next generational phrase in Genesis 1. turn there with me. Genesis 5, one. This one is also unique in that it mentions the book of the generations of Adam. Moses takes care in Genesis 5 to trace the godly line from Adam to Seth all the way down to Noah, which introduces the flood narrative of Genesis 6. Yet before we are introduced to the kind of man that Noah is, we're told of the devastating downward spiral of sin's effects in human beings and in the world. Turn over from that generational phase phrase to Genesis 6 and look at verses 5 to 7 with me. Genesis 6, 5 and 7. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. There has been a baby boom of the seed of the serpent, capitalizing on the sinful bent of human beings who inherited a sin nature through Adam when he fell. But in Genesis 6, 8, there's hope. There's a godly man. There is an offspring of the woman that God will raise up as to be a second Adam, Noah. Noah, in verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 9, we read again that phrase, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God as Adam had. And through Noah, God would work, giving him instructions for the creation of an ark to spare him and his family and the land animals from the judgment to cleanse the earth of evil that had permeated through the seed of the serpent. As Jesus said, it would be in the days prior to his return, so it was in the days of Noah before the flood. People living as though everything would always be the same. People living as though there was no God, as though God was not holy, as though God would not judge. And they were deadly wrong. Except for eight people, everyone died. Everyone. The story we tell in all sorts of cute ways to our children should cause us to tremble. God is holy. Sin will be judged. Yahweh is rightly angered at evil he's also merciful. He promised a serpent slayer and he covenants with Noah for the sake of all nations. Before the flood came in 618 God promised to establish his covenant with Noah. When the flood subsided and Noah departed the ark of salvation, he builds an altar to the Lord. The aroma pleased Yahweh. There's a a sacrifice on it. And he promises never to destroy the earth by flood again. And if you look with me to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Just turn a few pages. We hear that word that's 88 times in the book of Genesis. In 9-1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 9, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. The fulfillment of the promised serpent slayer depends upon this. But Noah is not the one. As the first Adam failed in the pre-flood garden, Noah fails by getting drunk from the fruit of his post-flood garden. He's discovered passed out shamefully naked in his tent. And so we keep looking and longing For the seed of the woman, he would crush the head of the serpent. Which brings us to Genesis 10, verse 1. We see the phrase again. Genesis 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here we begin to learn that God intends to bless one nation for the sake of all nations. Genesis 10 lists 70 nations representing all of humanity. Shem is introduced first, but he's dealt with last, which is a pattern in Genesis. The seed of the serpent is dealt with first, then the seed of the woman. The ungodly line is set aside so that the godly line will be the focus. And we learn in Genesis 10 that Shem is where the Hebrews come from. Now, despite the efforts of the nations joining together to make a name for themselves in the Tower of Babel, God has to come down to see their puny efforts. He scatters the nations by confusing the language, but the thread is not lost. We pick up the line God would work through again in chapter 11, verse 10. Look there with me. Genesis eleven ten. 10. Look at what it says. These are the generations of Shem. And his line is followed all the way down to Terah in Genesis 11, verse 26. And then again in Genesis 11, verse 27, we trace the family line of Terah. And there, Genesis 11:27. 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And thus begins the story of the patriarchs, starting with Abram, whom God calls in verses 12, 1 to 3, to be as another Adam he will covenant with. And there in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God speaks to Abraham And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Do you see the theme? Yahweh sovereignly orchestrating the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations. And from here to his death, in Genesis 25, we witness the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12 is Abraham's introduction to Yahweh. Genesis 15 is said to be as the engagement, the betrothal of this relationship. Turn there with me to Genesis 15. There, Abram brings a problem to God of his being a father of a great nation. He has no children. And he's old, and his wife is old. She's post menopause. How is the seed of the woman going to come from Abram to bless the nations? But God promises that his own son would be his heir. God brings Abram outside, and he says to him in Genesis 15:5, Please look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. The text goes on to say in verse 6, quoted four times in the New Testament, and he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then God cuts a covenant with Abraham in that strange scene of his presence, passing through the animals cut in two. And verse 17 says in chapter 15, On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham. As Ray Vanderland writes, and I quote, When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Slay the dragon, save the girl. This is what Yahweh has been working towards since the beginning, which is confirmed to Abraham in Genesis 17. Turn there with me. Genesis 17 if Genesis 12 is Abram's first meeting with Yahweh, and Genesis 15 is as the engagement in the relationship between him and Yahweh, Genesis 17 has been likened to the wedding ceremony. And there God gives Abram a new name, Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. And he says to him in Genesis 17:7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Miraculously, God promises a solution to their childless reality, a son called Isaac, which means laughter. And even though Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands, and Abram slept with Hagar, he gave birth to Ishmael. God is faithful. Isaac is born, bringing joy to the old couple, and through Isaac, a blessing to the nations. And then, turn with me to Genesis 22. One of the most poignant scenes in all of Scripture. Genesis 22 where we witness what has been called the golden anniversary in Abraham's covenant relationship with Yahweh. And there, Abraham is tested beyond measure when God says to him in 22, to, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you all of the eggs of the promise are in the Isaac basket. And yet Abraham's faith passes this testing beyond measure and he is blessed beyond measure. Trusting that God could even raise him from the dead to keep his promises. He almost follows through on sacrificing Isaac until that last moment when God says in verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And instead, a ram is provided, sacrificed in Isaac's place, which points us to Christ. And then God speaks to Abraham a second time, In Genesis 22, he says in verse 6, 16, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Through Abraham, God sovereignly orchestrates the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the sake of all nations. Slay the dragon, save the girl. But Abraham is not the one. In the mixture of this incredible faith is incredible failure. In Genesis 25, he dies. Good, you're tracking with me. I didn't even tell you to turn there, and you're going. Genesis 25, 12, Moses picks up the phrase again. These are the generations of Ishmael. But Ishmael is not of the seed of the woman either. He's not of the godly line, so he's dealt with first and he's set aside. Ishmael, though a great nation as promised by God, he settles over against the godly line. He settles outside of the promised land. He is far removed from the God of the covenant. Instead, we're pointed to Isaac in verse 19. There's the phrase again. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Remember that miracle? And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And in Genesis 26, verses 3 to 4, God confirms with Isaac the covenant with Abraham. And he says, I will be with you, and I will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But before this can happen, there's another problem to overcome. Like father, like son, Abraham's wife is barren. The only way the covenant can be fulfilled, the only way the promise can be realized of a serpent slayer who will save the girl is if God intervenes. So Isaac prays, and Yahweh hears his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceives. But you might remember her womb as a cage stage for two boys, as Genesis 25, 22 tells us. This is the only time I'll ask you to go backwards. Genesis 25, 22 tells us. The children struggled together within her and she said if this is if it's thus why what why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of Yahweh and in verse 23 Yahweh said to her two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older will serve the younger this is out of order but not in God's economy Yet even from the womb, there's enmity between the two brothers, as there was between Cain and Abel, as there was between Ishmael and Isaac, and as there is now between Esau and Jacob. Enmity. Conflict. The skirmish causes massive problems in the household. As Jacob schemes to rob Esau of his birthright and his blessing, he's successful And in vengeful rage, what does Esau want to do? He wants to murder his brother. So Jacob, the one through whom God said he would work, has to run away. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent continues. Yet as Jacob flees, Yahweh reveals to him a beautiful dream of a blessed future reality in Genesis 28. Turn there. Genesis 28, in verses 13 and 14 of Genesis 28, that's verses 13 and 14, in the vision, in the dream, it says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Do you see the theme? Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, sovereignly orchestrating the coming of the promised serpent slayer by covenanting with one family for the blessing of all nations to slay the dragon, to save the girl. To this end, God works even when Jacob, the schemer, is tricked into marrying a woman he did not love. And in the mess of the covenant family, with Jacob fathering 12 children to four different women, a nation is birthed, and good thing, because Isaac, who dies, is not the promised one in Genesis 3.15. And neither is his firstborn Esau. Turn with me to Genesis 36. We're getting near to the end now. Genesis 36, here we encounter the second last occurrence of that phrase. Genesis 36, verse 1, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, and that alone sets him apart from the godly line. In verse 6, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. But Jacob and his failings is not the one either, which brings us to the final occurrence of the phrase in chapter 37, one chapter later. We see the phrase one final time. Genesis 37, verse 2, These are the generations of Jacob which deals with his 12 sons, particularly Joseph and Judah. And when this cycle comes to an end, With the death of Jacob and Joseph in Genesis 49 and 50, Yahweh has sovereignly orchestrated the raising up of Joseph to be the prime minister of Egypt. Pharaoh's right-hand man. And there, though his brothers... Meant this for evil, selling him into slavery. God meant this for good, so that the covenant family might be spared in a time of severe famine. And through Joseph, the nations come, and he distributes the blessing of grain, so that blessing might begin to pour out to the surrounding nations. And through this cycle, Judah is transformed becoming the first human being to offer himself in the place of another, such that when Jacob blesses his sons before he dies, he says to Judah, turn with me to Genesis 49. I want you to see this for yourself. Genesis 49. I'm going to read verse 8 and verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. From the very beginning, this is what God promised would happen. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, blessing the nations with his rule. And so Genesis traces from generation to generation the one family God covenanted with to bring a blessing to all nations. But Judah is not the one. The book of Genesis ends with death and with God's people in the land of Egypt, where they would be enslaved for 400 years. This is only the beginning of the story, but it continues through the Exodus, and the judges, and the priests, and the kings, and the prophets, until finally, finally, one emerges in history. And the New Testament begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Finally, he's here. And he did not fail as the first Adam did, or as Noah did, or as Abraham did, or as Isaac did or as Jacob did, or as Judah did, or as Moses did, or as Samuel did, or as David did. He is the true and better Adam, God's faithful covenant partner who lived in perfect obedience. The man Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced on the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull in order to crush the head of the serpent. The one who laid down his life for his bride to rescue her from sin, from death, and from Satan, the one who slayed the dragon to save the girl. This is the story of all stories which is playing out in history and of which we are a part. The book of Genesis is its introduction, which, which reveals to us the following about God and ourselves. First, that God is sovereign, and we should submit to Him. He is sovereign over the universe that He has created. He is sovereign in the covenant-making and fulfilling and orchestrating down throughout the generations to bring about the coming of His Son. We should submit to Him. God is holy, and we should fear Him. Sin will be judged. We see that in the garden as Adam and Eve are ejected. We see that in the flood, which is a precursor of the judgment to come. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a microcosm of the last day. We should fear him. Yet God is merciful. So we should repent before him. there was a promise of the serpent being cursed. The gospel was promised, an ark was provided, a rainbow was set in the sky. Children were given to people who should never be having children. God is inclined to save. God is also long-suffering towards humanity, and that is an invitation for us to come to him. The Hebrew is so picturesque. God has a long nose or wide nostrils. Well, that's what it means when it, when it says God is slow to anger. He's wide of nostril. His nostrils don't flare quickly or easily. He endured the sinful failures of humanity and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. He is patient and his patience is to lead you to repentance. We should come to him. God is also faithful, and we should trust Him from the garden through the generations. God has remembered and kept His covenant forever. He won't forget about you. And God is victorious. So to Him, we should pledge our allegiance, our heart, our soul, our body, our mind, our strength. We should give our all to Him. Which raises the question... Whose side are you on? Are you of the seed of the woman? Or are you of the seed of the serpent? Are you aligned with the dragon? Or with the dragon slayer? If you are not decidedly for Jesus Christ... You are against him. And if you are against him, you will spend forever in the same place as the dragon Satan and all of his followers. Friends, this is a battle for your soul. And this is the battle for the souls of men and women and children. Eternity is at stake. So wake up to the sounds of this spiritual war playing all around you that are dulled by materialism and entertainment and pleasure and satisfaction that is offered to us falsely, you are being deceived, you are being played. The God of this world is blinding you to keep you from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring as many down with Him as possible. But here today... You can see Christ as your Savior before you undoubtedly see him soon as judge. And so it is time to renounce sin and rebellion against this God. It is time to renounce the ancient serpent. It's time to cross lines and bow before Jesus Christ to confess that he is Lord, to trust in him, for him to be the captain of your salvation and the shepherd of your soul. Would you do that now, this very moment? If you claim to have done so, you'd have not gone through the initiation right. It is time, friend, to step up to the waters of baptism. This is the way that you stand up and are counted among the ranks of the armies of the Lamb. Baptism, Peter writes, is as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And listen, the serpent understands this. This is when Christians show up on his radar. That's why today in some countries of the world, when people are baptized, they are hunted down and killed. But they are more than conquerors. For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But their allegiance is made clear, and so the dragon rages because he knows his time is short. But what of you? Will you go on record as belonging to the serpent slayer? And, brothers and sisters, I know you know this war is not over yet. To use Oscar Kallman's analogy from World War II, Christians now live between D Day, June 6, 1944, and VE Day, May 8, 1945. I know you've heard this before, it bears repeating. In World War II, on D-Day, the Allies decisively defeated their enemy. Victory for the Allies was inevitable, but the war wasn't over yet. Some of the most gruesome fighting in the war followed D-Day. It was not until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, that the war officially ended. D-Day represents when Jesus decidedly defeated Satan in his life, crosswork, resurrection, and ascension. And V.E. Day represents when Jesus will return to earth to consummate his victory. Right now, we are living in that period between D. Day and V.E. Day. The war is not yet over. So let me ask four concluding questions, brothers and sisters. How are you engaging? How are you faring? Here are the questions. Number one, are, and I'm with the help of Andy Naselli to give credit where credit is due, are there any ways you are imitating the serpent? He lies. Are you living a double life? Are you hiding sin with deception? Are you covering up evil? To do so is to be like Satan. I hope you understand that but to tell the truth is to be like God. What do you need to bring into the light of the gospel today to bring to Jesus who will meet you with grace and with truth? Will you do that? Will you ask the Spirit of Christ to give you courage and strength to deal in truth? When we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. Are you imitating the serpent in any way? Number two, are you being sober-minded and watchful of the serpent? Peter tells us your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy you. He wants to see you enslaved to pornography. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to lay hold of your children He wants you to love money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. There are temptations for all of us for every season of life. Are you being aware of the ways he's trying to trick you, of the ways he's trying to devour you? How are you paying attention? The war is not over. Three, are you fighting the serpent? Are you taking up spiritual weapons to wage spiritual warfare? How do we do that? I quote, We fight the serpent by believing and speaking the truth, by upholding righteousness, by preaching the gospel to ourselves and those around us, by unwaveringly trusting God, by living like what we are, delivered from the serpent, by understanding and applying God's word, and by praying at all times in the Spirit for ourselves and our brothers and sisters. In this war, what it means is that this room should be full on a Sunday night as much as it is on a Sunday morning, because it is not over. Andy Nassali writes, You won't properly fight the serpent if you are flirting with him. You won't fight against the serpent the right way unless you feel about him the right way. He gives us some help to understand how we should feel. How do you feel about Voldemort when you read Harry Potter? How do you feel about Sauron when you read Lord of the Rings? How do you feel about the White Witch when you read The, read the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? How do you feel about Apollyon when you read The Pilgrim's Progress? How do you feel about reading of the worst of history's tyrants like Paul Pod and Hitler and Stalin and Idi Amin? This, he says, is how you should feel about the serpent in real life. You should feel disgust at his poison, outrage at his injustice, and a deep longing for justice to prevail. But we are no match for the serpent and the serpent's offspring. But the serpent and the serpent's offspring are no match for God's serpent slayer. Jesus of Nazareth, who died to rescue us, who rose again to conquer death, he is coming soon. And so the fourth question is this, are you exulting in the serpent slayer? Are you longing for that day? We began our service with Revelation 12. The Revelation later goes on to tell us, I love to talk to my three-year-old about this. I tell him, Isaiah, Jesus will come on a white horse and his eyes will be ablaze and on his head will be many crowns and he will be clothed with a robe dipped in blood and he will rule the nations as with a rod of iron. This roaring lion will easily take the mewling dragon like you could a newborn kitten and he will throw him into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever and I will give a shout that would make my throat raw if it were not for the fact that upon that moment death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. The one who died, but behold, who is alive forevermore, he has power, and he has authority to bring all of this to pass, and we should delight in him, for he is coming soon, and very soon, and he is all we have, but he is all we need, because he is the promised serpent slayer who died to slay the dragon and save the girl. All we have is Christ, but he is all we need. So let us affirm the truth of this now together in song.